You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. That was a lot. All right. We're in our last week of our series called Behold. It's our Advent series. And then as we've seen, you've probably heard it enough, but the idea of see or behold is that it's this word you do that just wants to draw you in so that you understand and perceive what's going on. We see it throughout the narratives. We've seen it. We'll see it again today. And each week, there's been a new kind of topic that we've looked at. And in week one, we behold the promises and we have hope there. And we beheld the king who brings peace and the savior last week brings joy. We got our final one today as we unpack Matthew chapter two. Um, there's, a, there's a show, I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've seen it a couple of times. It's not my favorite, but it's, it's, it's interesting enough. It's called Undercover Boss. You know this show? Okay, so some of you watch it, you're like, yeah, great. So you, the concept is this, CEO, head guy, owner of some big corporation, you know, not just like a little mom and pop, like big corporation goes undercover, kind of they put wigs on and makeup and they make them look different. And, and this CFO, CEO, owner goes and does like entry level jobs, right? So they, they, one of the owners of the Chicago Cubs, they, they dress up, they go sell hot dogs and they change the, the scoreboard, which actually would be actually awesome in my opinion, but they change the scoreboard and they go clean bathrooms after a game, which is not awesome. Uh, but, you know, so something that's far below their normal position, right? Drew Brees, he did it. He owns some, you know, some franchise of food restaurants in New Orleans and he goes and he starts cooking. So that's the concept. It's really interesting. Um, they kind of just tell him it's, oh, it's about something else, but really it's the CEO hiding, veiling himself or herself and a lot, of th- a lot of different responses. Sometimes, you know, you'll find an employee that's been faithful for 15 years, does a great job, loves the job, uh, has a sick mom at home, working extra hours to take care of them, and, and, and you know, just all sorts of cool things. And then you have the flip side, which you expect. Some of them are just, just bums. And you have, they treat employees bad and they skip protocols and they, they badmouth the owner and badmouth their bosses. And so you watch this and they don't have any clue. And at the very end of the show, there's a big reveal. And it's like, oh, surprise, you know, take off the mask. I'm the owner, you're fired. I mean, that's kind of, and that happens sometimes. One lady, she got fired because she treated all the, uh, all the customers like dirt. And, he's, and she's like, well, I didn't know it was you. If I it was you, I wouldn't have done it, which is kind of the whole point. But others are rewarded. You've been faithful for 10 years. You do a great job. You really love this job. You really love people. They go send them to Hawaii or pay off their medical debt or send their kid to college or all sorts of cool things, right? But the point is this. Somebody high up conceals their identity, veils it, and enters into the world of those who are considered at a different level, right? We have a word for this, theological word. It's an English word. It's the word condescend, you heard this word, condescend, not condescending, although it's related. To condescend means this. It means to put aside one's dignity or superiority voluntarily and to assume equality with one regarded as inferior. To be graciously willing to do something that was regarded beneath one's dignity. That's what these bosses are doing. And that really is the heart of the Christmas story. It's the condescending of God to us, right? He is the original undercover boss. Doesn't look like much, but he's the boss. And we're gonna see a narrative today uh, that 
that there's several different responses to Jesus as the undercover boss. And we're gonna see him. And all I wanna do is this. I want you to identify which one are you because you're one of the three. These are the three general responses to Jesus, to Jesus condescending, to Jesus as Paul says, uh, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant being laid in the likeness of men. How do you respond to that? That's what we're gonna talk about today as we behold lasting our God. That you behold, that you would see, that you would perceive your God this morning. So I'm gonna read our text. It's my favorite of all the Christmas narratives because it's the one that you, you butcher the most. I'm sorry, your nativity is pagan. It really is. It's just off. It's not biblical. I'll explain why. I'm not saying don't have it out front. Okay, I know your kid was the Magi in the play. Doesn't mean anything bad. I'm just telling you, most nativities are wrong. Okay, they, they missed the story. That's the fun of this story. So let me read the story and we'll come back at the end and I'll just give you a highlight real quick, the three responses and you can identify yourself in there. All right, oh, where are my glasses? There they are, can't see the Bible. Here we go. Verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with them and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So it starts out. Now, after, circle that in your Bible. It's an important word. After, this is not actually the birth narrative of Jesus. This is what? After, very good one guy, you get to go to heaven today. Very good, okay. After, okay, there's only two gospels that actually deal with the birth of Jesus or the birth issues of Jesus. You realize this, right? Mark doesn't say anything, John doesn't say anything. It's only Matthew and Luke. And Matthew deals with the after and the before with Joseph. And Luke is the one where you get the actual birth. This is important. Because remember, all scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, so we're adequate. There is no unimportant details. There is no unnecessary information. So whatever God has here, he has it for a reason. So it's the after part. How far after? Probably about a year-ish, right? And there's several reasons why we'll look at, but it's not Jesus in a manger. This is, that's, that's done. This is after that, okay? That is important. All right, so after Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem. They didn't go back to Nazareth. Talked about that probably because it was scandal in Nazareth. So let's start anew. They're in Bethlehem of Judea. It's the days of Herod, the king. 
Now, here's what you need to know about Herod. Number one, he's a fake king. He's a puppet king. Rome made him king, but he's not actually the king of Israel. He's not even a Jew. He is a Edomite. An Edomite comes from the nation, I mean, comes from the people of Esau. Remember, we did a series back in the spring, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is Israel. Esau is Edomite. They were fighting in the womb. They were fighting after the womb. They're still mortal enemies. And right now, ruling in Jerusalem under the throne, really, of Caesar is a man named Herod, who is a bad dude. He hates everybody, right? Uh, But Rome likes him because he's cruel and he keeps people in line. And, and some of the things he did, this, this guy, this nasty guy, he killed many of his wives, numerous children, because he thought they wanted his throne. Uh, he killed on his own deathbed, he kills his own son. And he has all the nobles and the important people in Jerusalem gathered up when he's about to die and he commands that after I die, kill them all. Because he knew everyone wouldn't be sad at his death, so he wanted everyone to be sad for a reason. So he killed all the important people in Jerusalem. Nice dude. He's in charge of, of uh, Jerusalem at this point. Just a side note. I know some of you are like, oh, so the United States is so bad. Uh. Okay, our government is not even close to this. Okay, this is the, this is the world Jesus enters into on purpose. It wasn't like, oh man, I missed it by 200 years. This is where he comes on purpose. Okay, that's what's going on there, right? So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and what does it say? See, behold, perceive. There's our word. Matthew wants to draw you in so that you see something. What? Wise men. The Greek word magi, right? We bring it right over in English. That's the actual word, magi, right? Now here's what you have to understand. For us, we're like, yeah, the three kings. They weren't kings, and there weren't three of them. That's another story, all right? But for a, a Jewish reader, remember, the Gospel of Matthew is written to the nation of Israel. It's the Gospel for Israel, right, to show that Jesus is their Messiah. When they hear that magi are the ones who come to see their Messiah, you have to understand their response would have been a gasp and a no, no, right? Let's try that. Pretend I'm Matthew, you're the nation of Israel. And behold, Magi. Yes, yes. That, and, and the reason why they would have been like, no, is because the Magi were sketchy. First of all, they were Gentiles. We don't know a ton about them, but we do know this. They're probably from the Babylon area, about 1,500 miles to the east, um, they were astrologers and astronomers, and they worked with dreams and predictions and future and interpreting dreams. They were involved in the coronation of kings. They were involved in politics. It was all sorts of sketchy stuff that a law-abiding Jew would have found abhorrent. And so when they say, he says, behold, see, magi, no. And, and here's, here's why the details matter. This is why I want you to see. This is why the, the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture is so important, that the details matter. There's two Gospels that deal with the birth issues of Jesus around that. And, and the first two groups of people we see worshiping are who? In Luke, the shepherds. They were the rejects of the nation of Israel. And in Matthew, the Gospel for the Jews, it's a bunch of Gentile psychic readers. What is God trying to show them and us, that God loves 
the nations that God loves, the rejects, right? That he didn't just come for the clean and the religious and the pure, that he came for sinners like you and me. And here's another point. And this is, this is I think this is apropos for us in the church, right? This is the, remember, this is the gospel of the Jews. And the first people there for them are the Gentiles. For us, we have a tendency in the American church to think that, that Christianity is monopolized and we have the corner market on it as Americans. That God is an American God, that he is this. And God loves America just like he loves China and North Korea and Mexico and Cuba. He is not the king of America. He is the king of all peoples, all nations of all time. And none of us have the market cornered on Jesus, just so you know, okay? He's not flying a bunch of flags in heaven. There's no flags. There's just a throne and he's on it. And I love America and I love everything that God has been able to use our country to do the last 300 years, a ton for the gospel. But this is not a gospel of America. It is the gospel of Jesus. He is the king of all nations. He loves all peoples, all tribes. That is an important lesson that they struggle with. And I think they, we do too sometimes, right? But anyway, so they show up, they come to Jerusalem because that's where you look for a king. Uh, and they say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? This is a very unique phrase because no one is born king. You're born what? Prince. And then you become king. Even Simba knows that you have to wait to be king, right? Because you have to wait till the king's gone and then you step into that role. But this king that they are looking for has been born king. And how do they know? Because he, they saw his star. And what does that mean? And we really don't know. We know this. They were stargazers. They were astrologers. This is, seems to be how it went down. Jesus is born. All of a sudden, boom, they go out one night. There's a star or a comet or something. And they put two and two together. How? It doesn't tell us. But somehow they come to the conclusion that the king of Israel has been born. So they get on their animals and they ride a thousand plus miles across the wilderness to go see him, which takes some time to plan for a journey like that and to get on the road and to get there. And when we finally find out that they get there, it's, it's been a year, almost two, right? So that's why it's after. This is why your nativity is wrong. They weren't at the manger. In fact, if you want to make your nativity more accurate today, go home, get your wise men and take them down and put them on like Abercorn somewhere, okay? Put them on the sidewalk. And if I, if I see a bunch of magi on the sidewalk, I will, I will smile at y'all. That would be so awesome. All right, because that's, that's about accurate, all right? Or put them down to Richmond Hill, who knows? But the point is they came and, and you say, well, how did they know? I don't know, but my best hunch is this and it's, I, I may be right. Uh, these people lived in Babylon, that area. About 500 years earlier, there was a man who was in Babylon. We looked at him a couple years ago. His name was Daniel. And he was a prophet of Israel and he was also what would be known as the Magi. He was one of the counselors. He was one of the, the politicians. He was one of the dream interpreters of Nebuchadnezzar and then Media Persia, right? Darius the Mede and Cyrus. And he wrote a book. Real, you know, kind of original name. It's called Daniel, all right? Daniel chapter nine, we unpacked this several years ago. There's a prophecy about when the, anointing, the anointed one would come and how he would be cut off. And my gut is that they had this prophecy because it was written by one of their own and they figured out, okay, uh, the anointed one plus this, there's a dating period there and it, 
this star shows up one day and it must be him. There's another prophecy in the book of Numbers, which maybe they had from a man named Balaam, who was actually a prophet from the east. And he said, I see him and not now I, I behold him, but not near a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, shall crush the forehead of Moab. And so maybe they have Daniel and Numbers. They put two and two together. There's a star, boom. I don't know. Whatever it is, it caused them to go. And I don't know what the star was either. Here's what I know is probably not. It wasn't Jupiter and Saturn. Because I know it's like, being, oh, tomorrow night, Jupiter and Saturn, it's the Christmas star. No, that's Jupiter and Saturn. It, if Jupiter and Saturn can show up, I mean, light up and then go away and then all of a sudden show up and then move over a house and then shine a light down on the house, then Jupiter and Saturn can be the, this Christmas star. Don't think that's what it is. I don't know what it is. Could be a comet, I guess, with the tail kind of pointing down or something like that. It could have been the Shekinah glory. It could have been an angel. I don't know. I just know it happened because that's what God says, right? We don't have to have a natural explanation for everything God says because sometimes the Red Sea parts and it just parted. That's what happened, right? So what happens when they show up? Herod, the king heard he was troubled and all Jerusalem with them. They're flipping out in the city. Why? Because not three guys on camels show up. Historians say that a thousand on Persian steeds rode into town. Kingmakers with an army show up in Jerusalem asking for the king and everyone is losing their mind, including Herod. And so he assembles the chief priests. He calls all the pastors and says, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Notice his language. Where's the Christ? He knows this is messianic. This is not just a, guy, a rival king. This is Messiah. Where's Messiah gonna be born? And they say, hey, there's a prophecy in a book called Micah, chapter five, verse two. This is Bethlehem. The ruler is gonna come from Bethlehem. The shepherd is gonna come from Bethlehem. And so he gets the wise men secretly and he says, hey, go find the kid. Tell me where he is and I'll come worship. I can't tell these people because, you know, they just don't want to know, but I do. And so they listen to the king and they went on their way. And there it is. Behold. There's a star again, which shows me that, again, your little Christmas cards, they're super cute. But the guys look across the desert with the star following it. Wrong. The star shows up, they see it, king's born, star goes away. They come across the desert, talk to Herod, blah, 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 blah. Start going down the road again, star. That's how it went down. And this thing came up and then it rests over the house, the place where the child was. And when they saw it, notice, he uses four words to describe it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's not just yay. Yay is one word. They could have said they were happy. They're, they're just Cheerful, they're joyful. They've been a thousand plus miles and six months or however long. And finally, there it is again. God is guiding them. And so they come into Bethlehem. I want you to see this now. Bethlehem is a tiny little town. Remember, oh, little town of Bethlehem. That song's actually right. It was a little town. Today it's a little town. There's only about 25,000 people that live in Bethlehem. I was like, Pooler, right? Or whatever. Okay. Back then, it was about three or 400 people that lived in Bethlehem. So it's a little town. Little town of Bethlehem, it's 11.30 at night. It has to be because the stars shine and they can see it. A thousand horses. You know, picture Monty Python and all the coconuts, but louder, right? Okay. But it's just loud and all these people in this pomp and circumstance. And all of a sudden, they come to the house. They go into the house. And don't think little cottage on top of a little hill and a little white fence with sheep and goats. Think something like this. This is a, a, re, a replication of a house in Nazareth, very similar to the house in his day. A little courtyard where the little sheep would be. You got the, the kids downstairs, the parent upstairs. I mean, very small. This would have been a, a blue collar's house in Bethlehem. And so there's a knock at the door. And Joseph looks at a little hole. 
And he says, this one's for you, Mary, I think. All right? And they go in and they see the child. Now, the word child is not the same word as the word of your baby, which shows that it's not a baby anymore. It's a child. Anything up to 24 months. So let's say it's been a year and three months. So baby Jesus is 15 months, right? 15 months old. And they see him and he's with his mama. What did they see? They saw just an average, ordinary looking Jewish 14 month old boy. Nothing special. Veiled, undercover boss. If you saw him, you'd be like, yeah, he's cute. Looks like his dad. No, he doesn't look like his dad. He looks like his mom. Couldn't be his dad, because his dad's a stepdad. Right? Just a normal 15-month-old kid. Don't, this is the beauty of the condescension of God. This is the beauty of the undercover boss. He was not over in the corner. Like three Bibles. I got the King James, I got the New Living Translation, the NIV. And he's not reading the Bible. And they walk in, he's like, I've been waiting for you, man. Come on in. I have some things to show you. There's not light coming from his head and just like angels. Say, Woo! You know, what does a 15-month-old boy do? He's got a stick and food that fell on the floor. And he's probably in his little, his little onesie diaper. And he might be talking. He might be kind of waddling. And they kind of waddle and they walk. And, and, and maybe he's a little timid because a thousand horses and a bunch of dudes wearing you know, dresses come in the door. And he might be hiding behind his mom's leg. He's a normal 15-month-old baby, except he's not. <laughs> He's not, right? And so what do they do? They see him and they fell down. Literally the word means they threw themselves on their ground and they then worshiped on the ground. It's, a, it's like two words that say the same thing. They fell down and they fell down and worshiped him. And here's what I want you to think about that. Okay, how many of you would be willing to go into the, you know, the, the nursery and, and go into the swimmers or the flappers or the divers or whatever they are over there in the 50, they told me and I forgot already, sorry, Christina. Uh, and go over to a 15-month-old boy and get on your face and worship. Think about that. That's what these men, these important men, these influential men, these kingmakers, these, these men who are involved in politics and things, they get on their face in the dirt in a little house. Maybe they took turns. Maybe all 1,000 came in. I don't know. But they worshiped. And they offered treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then they left. They leave. One worship service. Boom. They go out. They obviously have plans to go back to, to, to Jerusalem to tell Herod. Because he said to everyone's find him. And, and, and so they're, they're going to you know, sleep one night. And they're, you know, they're going to go back up to Jerusalem. And then they'll head way back you know, to Babylon. That's their intent. Except that night, they all have dreams. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed. They wake up in the morning. Man, what a great night's sleep. I had the craziest dream. I, I just, Angel stood up and said, don't go back to Herod. What do you think about that? You are kidding me. I had the same dream. What about you? Yeah, man, me too. I had the same. And all of them, however many are. And there's a guy in the end like, I dreamed that and that Georgia was going to win the championship. I know that's not true. So this one must be true. Because everyone else had that dream. And they put two and two together, dream, the interpreter of dreams and stars. And so what happens? They go a different way back home. They listen to God. And we find out what happens next, and you can read on your own, is Herod, realizing he's been tricked, 
he goes into Bethlehem and he slaughters every child that's two and under in the entire region, thinking he could catch Jesus. But, but Joseph already had a dream and they're on the way to Egypt. And then all he's doing is fulfilling prophecy. There was a prophecy that out of Egypt I call my son. Check. There's another prophecy that there's gonna be weeping in Ramah and Rachel, which is what happened because all the children were killed. Um, but you see the nastiness of him and you see God coming through and saving his son. But what I want you to see and not miss this Christmas is I want you to see and behold your God. Because he's veiled, but he is the undercover boss. I don't want you to miss. I mean, I know it's hard to fathom, but that little child, that 15-month-old, that 14-month-old, whatever, that, that he was the seed of the woman who was going to crush the head of the serpent. That, that this little child was the one who actually chose Abraham, that actually chose Isaac, that chose Jacob, that chose David. That this little child was the one who spoke from the, the burning bush to Moses. We'll see that in the spring. That this little child is the one who parted the Red Sea so that the people of God could cross it on dry land. That this little child... This little 15-month-old, that he is the one that by him and for him and through him, all things were created. And heaven and earth, visible and invisible, dominions, authorities, powers, by him, for him, through him. That he is before all things. That in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That he would reconcile all things to himself. He may not look like much, but he is the alpha, the omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the undercover boss, right? And he doesn't look like much because he's condescended. He's not just a boy who was gonna become a king and who would rule a nation. He was the king who became a boy so that he could save all the nations. Can you see him? Do you perceive him? Do you behold him? Because there's three responses to him. And it's the same three responses we see in the world and I guarantee in this room, right? There's three different responses to that truth in this room and in the world. Here's the three. They're pretty obvious. Herod's response, which is what? He resists, right? Foolishly, but he tries to stop it. He resists. Why? Because Herod doesn't want another king. Herod wants to be king. And so he does everything he can to try to stop it. But he can't stop it, right? And, and it's, the same, it's the same attitude you see in the world. It really is. That doesn't want a new king, that doesn't want to listen to a king, that doesn't want a Jesus who's a savior from sin. They want a Jesus who's a little baby Jesus and then a little kind Jesus and healing people Jesus. But we don't want a savior from sin Jesus, and everything, you drop the name Jesus or Christ, or this, this is the, the response. It's no, I don't want anything. You can't talk about God. You can't talk about God. Freedom from religion. Freedom of all these things. We even live in a time now, uh, I don't know when this happened. I mean, some of you maybe educators can tell me. It used to be growing up that human history was divided by this one event, right? You had B.C., before Christ, A.D., after death, or Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Now, apparently, I don't know when this happened, it's not B.C. anymore, it's B.C.E., and it's not A.D., it's C.E. And I'm like, what is that? I th- is that like an engineer thing? All the engineers got in charge and we have before civil engineering, now civil engineering? I don't know. But apparently it's before common error and common error. 
we got rid of the Christ and we got rid of the year of our Lord. And now we have, even though we still date the world based on that event, we want to take Jesus out of it and we want to take Lord out of it. And I tell you, that's the heart of people towards the Savior. They want to resist. I don't need a new king. Maybe some of you are here. You're like, ah, you know what? I'll come to church because it's Christmas. I don't really want a Jesus right now. Let me live my life, do my stuff, live, you know. And then when I'm 40, 50, and, you know, grandparents, then I'll follow Jesus. Or I'm just here for the girl. She's cute. She loves Jesus. I, you know, I want to date her. So I'm, I don't really want a Jesus, but I want the girl. So I'll come and, you know, I'll do that thing. I know you're out there, boys. I know you're there. Right? Whatever it is, or I don't want to, okay, I'll, I'll be even like Herod, I'll fake it. I can fake singing Christmas carols, fake caring, but really I could care less. And you could be here, look, Herod was convincing at faking worship, wasn't he? So much so that the guys who were called wise men were fooled. And the only way that they could be warned was that God had to show up in a dream. Some of you could be really good at faking it, but guess who knows? The omniscient, sovereign savior of the world knows. That's who knows. You're not faking him. And, and my encouragement to you is, look, what are you resisting? A God who loved you so much that he gave his life and died on a cross for your sins in your place so that you could spend eternity with him? You're resisting that so that you can be king, so you can be in charge? Let me tell you, if you follow the road of I'm in charge, my kingdom, my thing, is that all you care about is my will be done, not thy will be done? Let me tell you where that road ends. Number one, you will lose because King Jesus will win. I've read the end. Spoiler alert, he wins. Convincingly. Convincingly. Number two, you will end up miserable and jaded and mean and nasty, just like Herod. Because the last thing you need as a human being is to get everything you want and be told how great you are. Because what you end up doing is not being like the king who condescends. You end up being condescending to everyone because you're better than everybody. This is why famous people, for the most part, are jerks. All right? I mean, have you ever met one? You know, they act like they're, they're better than everyone else. They, they, none of the rules apply to them. Right? Why? Because they've been told how great they are their whole life. And so they cond- they're condescending to everyone, to the normal people. And, and that's Herod. Herod has everything you could ever want. He's richer than everybody. He's got more power. He's got more influence. All he cares about is not losing what he's got. How sad. He spends his life trying to keep all this little kingdom, and in the end, he loses it anyway. That's your future if you're only about you. That's why you make a lousy king. You just do, and so do I. You need someone else to be king. Do not resist your God. That's the first response. Here's the second one is indifference. And this is the one I think probably is the most frequent in my heart and in yours, if you're honest. And I am. Who, what, how do the religious leaders respond? They are apathetic. They are indifferent. They are like, yeah, that's great. I mean, think about this. These are the men who for their whole lives, what they do, they teach, they pray, they read the Bible, they copy the Bible. The reason why you have copies of the Bible is because these men copied the Bible and the scrolls and then they were copied and co- That's what they did. All they did was church stuff. That's what they got paid the big bucks for is church stuff. All right? And, and they've been waiting for a thousand years for the promised Messiah. You would think... After a thousand years and all they knew about the Bible, they hear about a potential Messiah sighting down the road. You know how far Bethlehem and Jerusalem are? Five miles. Five miles is it. You would have thought they would have been like, yeah, we should probably send somebody down there. Just check it out. And we could send Leroy the Levite. I mean, he's like the newbie. 
He's in charge of coffee and taking the sheep out when they need to go to the bathroom. At least send somebody. Send the intern. Send somebody. They do nothing. They don't even care. And think about the contrast between the magi, the pagan astrologers, and the Bible thumpers, the seminary professors. These guys will not even catch an Uber 10 minutes down the road. It's even a downhill five miles. You could ride a skateboard and not even pedal one time. It's downhill the entire way. These guys come, they have no Old Testament hardly. They come across a wilderness and a desert and spend months and months. These guys won't go five miles down the road. This is, and this is to the, to the nation of Israel. And I think that's a great lesson for us to be reminded. If you hear, behold your God, see your God as a 15 month old and then as a 30 year old and then on a cross and then a resurrected. If your response is, that's nice. Honey, are you getting a honey baked ham of Christmas or am I using the green egg? If that's your response, then you're just like them. If you're like, angels, we are heard on high. Is Amazon coming today? Because I ordered that thing and I need it here by the 24th. I think that if we're honest, we can be lulled to sleep by our familiarity with the Bible. And there is an eternal difference between about knowing where Jesus was born and knowing Jesus. And that's the difference between us, these guys. It really is. And I want to encourage us. I want to challenge us. Look, American Christianity, it's, it's, here's why it's hard to be a Christian in America. Not because it's, there's so much opposition. It's because you're so comfortable. Do you realize that? It actually is it's the enemy of the church's comfort. Because I can't get people to show up if, if it's too early or if I preach too long or if the coffee's not good or if the chairs aren't comfortable, if the AC's too this, if we don't have good enough songs. I mean, that's the way it is. We got people sleeping in this morning because it rained. It's like, they're, it's like they're the wicked witch of the West. They melt if they go outside to church on a Sunday. Oh, I'm melting. I knew it. I'm like, you have cars, people. These things called windshield wipers. I don't know if they taught you about that in driver's ed, right? I mean, but, but the, the idea is if it's, if it's not easy, we're not in. Go overseas. Just for, you, if you, once everything's lifted, you ought to go overseas and see the church and see how the difference and the apathy where they will walk miles and miles to come to church. They don't have five copies of the Bible in their trunk that they haven't opened. They have zero Bible. They'll actually copy verses on pieces of paper for themselves to memorize so that if or when they get arrested, they actually have the scriptures in their heart. And they can be comforted in jail. They, if I preach, when I go overseas, if I preach a 30 minute sermon, they're like, what was that? That's a welcome. They want hours because they've come all this way because they're hungry. And, and the idea is this, don't let comfort make you apathetic to the miracle of the incarnation. Behold your God who loved you so much that he died for you. So don't be resisting, don't be indifferent. What do we do? We do what the Magi did. We seek and we worship, right? This is the model. It's easy. You could have preached this sermon. We seek and we worship. How, how do they seek? <laughs> I mean, that's a seeking journey, 1,500 miles, something like that. And I would say this to you. Uh, just, if you're a young for, person, you know, the young people, I know the, the heart, you want to have a life that means something and impact and, and adventure. You want to have a life that means something. Pursue your God. You want to make a difference. 
a real eternal difference, pursue your God. Right, you want a life of adventure? You pursue your God. And I didn't say it would be easy, and I didn't say you'd be rich, but I will say this, it'll be joy. How do I know? Because when they saw the star, they rejoiced. When they found what they were looking for, they rejoiced. You will find joy, you will find contentment. It will be an adventure, it will be challenging, but it will be worth it. You have issues, you got struggles with sin, you got struggles with relationships, seek your God. You wanna know truth, seek your God. You need strength for this, seek your God. Seek your God, because you will find him. He promises. He's not hiding. This is not Marco Polo. Marco Polo. I mean, it's not that. Seek your God. If you, if you feel his tug today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, is what the writer of Hebrews said. And then worship. And we don't even have time to go into this, but the idea of worship is elevation. When you worship something, something goes up and something goes down. What goes up and what goes down in the story? Magi go down, Jesus goes up, right? It's all about elevation. You sacrifice to and for what you want. They sacrifice their time, their treasure, all these things. Why? Because they wanted to be with Jesus. Worship is singing, yes. Worship is living your life for God's name's sake, that yes, worship is giving, yes. Worship is enjoying the good gifts that God has given you. Worship is doing a great job at your office tomorrow because you're giving God glory. Worship is all these things. But for them, they worship with treasures. That's one of the things, they offer treasure. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Super strange gifts for a baby. Super strange. Now they're valuable to them and that's the idea, they're treasures. I mean, what's a baby Jesus gonna do with gold? I mean, you, you offer him gold, or a carrot, what's he gonna take? Oh, carrot, I mean, right? Because that's what a baby does. But it's symbolic. They don't know it, but it's symbolic. He's a king. Gold's a king. Frankincense, it's a, it's a sap, it's an incense that was burned in the temple. The, the priests who were the mediators between God and man would offer this incense and it pictured the prayers of God. And so it pictures Jesus as the sweetness of God in a stench of death world. And he is the mediator they don't know that, but that's what it's the idea. And then the final one that's the weirdest is myrrh, right? Myrrh is, a, is basically the modern equivalent of embalming fluid. You're gonna give an 18-month-old some embalming fluid? Here, have this for Christmas. Merry Christmas. It was used on dead bodies to cover the stench as they decayed. Jesus was offered myrrh two times in his life. One right here. Second time, after he was nailed to a cross, a Roman soldier dips a sponge in myrrh and he sticks it in his face. So it's the two times he's offered myrrh. And then after he says it is finished and he dies, he is wrapped by some rich, wealthy Jews, Nicodemus being one of them and Joseph of Arimathea, another. He's wrapped up and bound in, in basically a mummy and a, about 100 pounds of linen and spices. And you know what the spice they wrapped him was? John 19, myrrh. Because it pictures what he's going to do, his death. And think about this. Heard this this week, is brilliant. I was like, man, I've never heard that, never thought about that, but it's true. Jesus is wrapped in linen and myrrh. He's dead. Three days later, his body comes to life. His lungs fill with air. And what is the first thing he smells as he takes his first breath as the resurrected Lord? Myrrh. 
the sweetness of the myrrh that he has been wrapped and he has been embalmed in. It is a picture of victory over death and sin. It is resurrection. This is exactly what Jesus is going to do. These things are symbolic. They don't get it. Mary and Joseph probably don't get it. But we standing back and seeing the whole picture. Aha, he is king, he is mediator, he is substitute, he is Lord. And I would say this, the, the, the number one response to Jesus as God, even as a 15-month-old undercover boss, condescend, the response is worship. And you don't have to bring your treasure. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. For God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. He did it for you. He loves you. Most of us, Gentiles, enemies of God, he died for you. He was born for you. He entered into humanity. He condescended. He undercover bossed for you. And let me tell you, at the great reveal at the end, no one's going to want to be like, oh, I didn't know that was you. Every eye will see him at his second advent and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this is what Paul says again. He says, uh, because of his obedience to death, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So our response is, why not do it now? Gonna do it anyway. Why don't you worship the king who became a boy who will rule and reign for all eternity? Think about that. What's your response? Indifferent, resistant, or are you seeking him and worshiping him? That's what we want to be. Why don't you stand up? I'll pray. And we'll, uh, we'll just respond through singing just a few moments. Father, I thank you for your son and uh, your spirit who open our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. Let us not be apathetic towards the incarnation, Lord. I know we hear it so much. We see it on Christmas cards, let us not lose sight of the miracle that God became a man and dwelt among us. And now you've given your spirit to dwell among us forever. Let us not lose sight of that beautiful gift. And you did it because you loved us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.